This morning we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And last week we had that fairly controversial passage about people that were in the church that seemed to be Christians and that maybe they weren't Christians. And the author gives us a, gives them and us a nice little warning. And, uh, reading again, These verses, because I want to read to you what John Murray has to say about this situation. Ran out of time last week, but we will read that this week. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 6, the author of Hebrews writes, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. At first reading, it sounds like these are people that were once saved, have lost their salvation. But then as we look close at what the author is actually saying, we see that that is not what he is teaching here. So what he's teaching here is that in the visible church, there are some that are not the elect. They partake of a lot of things that the elect do, but they never are truly converted. And these people, if they partake of the covenantal blessings, if they then fall away, then you cannot renew them to repentance. So it's not teaching that you can be saved, that you're saved today and not saved tomorrow. He's not teaching us every other day with Jesus. He's not teaching any of that. Uh, Because we know that because of the perseverance of the saints, when God saves you, you cannot lose that salvation. Now John Murray, uh, who is a great theologian, uh, he's deceased now, He's a pretty reliable theologian. He says this. He says the Scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it is possible to have very uplifting, ennobling, reforming, and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the Gospel to come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that these forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace and yet be not partakers of Christ and the heirs of eternal life. Murray goes on to say, a doctrine of perseverance that fails to take account of such a possibility and of its actuality in certain cases is a distorted one and ministers to laxity, which is quite contrary to the interest of perseverance. Indeed, it is not the doctrine of perseverance at all. He's saying if you fail to take into account that people can actually look like true born-again Christians in the church and then they can fall away because they weren't actually truly saved. If you don't consider that kind of thing, then you do not have a doctrine of perseverance because there are some people that 
Just don't persevere. That's what he seems to be getting at. And he goes on to say, it is not true that the believer is secure. Now, this I, I thought was really good. He says it much better than I have ever been able to say it. He says, it is not true that the believer is secure however much he may fall into sin and unfaithfulness. I believe he's picking up on there saying once saved, always saved. Just say you walk down the aisle, you can live like the devil. You're still okay as long as you say the sinner's prayer. He's teaching against that in here. So he says, why is it not true? It is not true because it sets up an impossible combination. It is true that a believer sins. He may fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods, but it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. He cannot come under the dominion of sin. He cannot be guilty of certain kinds of unfaithfulness. And therefore, it is utterly wrong to say that a believer is secure, quite irrespective of his subsequent life of sin and unfaithfulness. The truth is that the faith of Jesus Christ is always respective of the life of holiness and fidelity. And so it is never proper to think proper to think of a believer irrespective of the fruits and faith and holiness. And he goes on and on about that, showing how unscriptural it is to say that you can be saved and still live like the devil, not pay any attention to holiness. So the two things to carry away from what Murray teaches is that number one, the doctrine of perseverance needs to always take into account that a person can appear to be saved and then fall away. Only appear to be saved. And then those that are truly saved will be marked out by a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So those are a couple of good things to take away from what we talked about last week. Any other questions or observations, comments on last week? Steve? I guess for me, and, and maybe you would agree that an, an uh, apostasy in fact is probably only publicly known to God. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, as many of you know, I have a child who, an adult child who seems to have <coughs> fallen from true faith. But at this point, I don't know, I really don't know if she is simply backsliding or if she has in fact forever fallen away. I mean, it seems that, that, that she's apostate. Yeah, God says if she truly has, it's impossible, but you can't tell. Yes? I was just reading in Second uh, Peter chapter 3 yesterday, and that whole thing is about false prophets in the church, and they're just very strong condemnation, like the end of, uh, uh, end of chapter 2. 
Second Peter chapter two, uh, strong condemnation of people that fall away. Yeah. The um, the only thing we can do is judge their actions. And the elders of the church, if somebody is living in open impenitent sin, then they are supposed to declare it. This person is an unbeliever, and they're eventually ex- excommunicated. But we're only reading their actions. That's what we can read. We can't actually read their heart. Elders could go astray, although they probably don't. If they're doing things biblically, Jesus Christ says, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there with them. So if a person is excommunicated from a church and the elders are following biblical guidelines and putting that person out of the church, Jesus says, he's damned. So that should be enough to wake up a person. Jesus says, if the elders are faithful and they throw you out of the church, you're out of the church. I guess coming on to practical theology, I guess, is, is I don't know if I should be praying for her. That's the bottom line. She, yeah. she has removed herself. You know, there was no church action or anything involved there. She's just like her confession and her lifestyle in every way is denied faith. And so, but I don't know if I should pray for her or not. She's still breathing, right? Yeah. The, um, the passage that was... When might would teach, I'm not saying I've interpreted this thing right. I'm not telling you not to pray for it. But John says there's a sin that leads unto death. Don't pray for that person. Jeremiah was told not to pray for certain people. So, you know, you have to take these things into consideration. And like That's said, if they were directly told, God directly told them, do not pray. Yeah. He didn't, I don't think he directly told them. I, I can't say it, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I think I would pray for. I mean, look at Saint Augustine's mother. What he, you know, as bad as he was. She, had he been in the faith and gone away, or no? Nah, I don't she, think he. This case where a person has been baptized and confessed the Lord and memorized tons of Scripture and had prayers that you would have thought were made in heaven, powerful prayers using scriptures that have been memorized, and now you would never know. That she had ever had any yeah. <clears throat> I, I kind of agree with, with Mike. If she's still living, um, breathing, then pray for her. I can't think of anybody I know that I wouldn't pray for that I've ever met. We pray for our government officials sometimes to ever reprobate Yeah. <laughs> God saved Paul. And look what he did. Okay, anything else? It's good practical stuff. Okay, today then we will move on to the further teaching of the author of Hebrews. He is going to show us the faithfulness of God. So, we will start over here with Joshua today. And if you will read for us verses, chapter 6, verses 9 through 
the end of the chapter. If you got enough endurance to go that far, that's what we would like. Okay. Nine through the end of the chapter. That's correct. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name. And in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end. That ye be not slothful, the followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Alright, now, we did that last week. That just kind of gets us some of the context. Now, beginning at 13 is where we will start this week. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sweared by himself. Saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obeyed the promise. For men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. All right, verses 13 through 20. You notice, this section starts out by mentioning that God made a promise to Abraham. Verse 13, it says, when God made the promise to Abraham. So it starts out that way. The subject of this section is the promise of God. Subject is the promise of God. And then the point of this section is that he keeps his promises. which would be so important to these persecuted Hebrews. Therefore, they have a good reason to persevere. He doesn't just tell them to persevere. He gives them a good reason to. And then he further comforts them by saying there is no chance that they will persevere in vain. I have told you to persevere. You have a good reason to do it. There is no chance that you will be let down. No chance that God is going to let you down. Now we see here that God is a God who keeps His promises. He is a promise keeper. Is any man a promise keeper? We have a whole organization called Promise Keepers, don't we? Oh, you mean they weren't promise keepers? Yeah, they were promising each other. 
All men are liars. They didn't have greater. The aim of being trying to be faithful to your promises is a good aim. But no man can claim that he is a promise keeper all the time. Only God is the true promise keeper. Um, David Peterson, who is the commentator in the New Bible Commentary, notes this. He says the basis of the Christian hope is not wishful thinking about the future, but a solemn promise of God. And he's got the word promise in italics. The solemn promise of God. The foundation of God's saving activity in the world was a particular promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll have you look that up. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So that promise he made to him, and then it was repeated at various stages to the forefathers of Israel in different forms. So this is the basic promise that God makes to Abraham. He had just called Abraham out of the uh, Chaldean, land of the Chaldeans, out of Ur, and he makes a promise to him. And Alana, if you'll read that promise for us. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Alright, probably the promise he's talking about is that through Abraham the world will be blessed. Alright, so there's the promise of God. And um, then, let's see. Um, Bud, you'll be the next to read. If you'll read, look up for us Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. And then, um, Mike, Genesis 22, 15 through 17. And actually, the Genesis passage we're going to read first. And I'll call on you when it's time. That's Genesis 22, 15 through 17. All right, in your notes, verses 13 and 14 state that God not only made a promise to Abraham, but He made an oath to keep it. So God made a promise, and then He swore on an oath to Abraham to keep His promise. And we read that He swore, and that the only thing He could swear by was Himself. Obviously, there's no higher authority than God. So He doesn't have anyone He can swear to other than Himself. As it says in verse 13 and 14, when God made the promise to Abraham since He could swear by none greater, He swore by Himself. And then verse 14 is the promise that Alanda had read to us. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. For blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. As the Hebrew says. 
which intensifies it. See. <clears throat> All right, now, God tested Abraham. We see in several places Abraham's faith wavered. I know in um, Romans 4, the Paul tells us that Abraham did not waver at the promises of God. He was looking at Genesis chapter 22. He wasn't looking at the earlier phases when Abraham's faith was pretty immature. But by the time we get to Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, we see that his faith has grown. So Genesis 22 verses 15 through 17, we see God's promise again. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Right, so there we see the oath. God made a promise, and here He makes an oath. After um, He, after it was shown, He already knew, but it was shown that Abraham was going to offer up his son as a sacrifice. And of course, his faith had grown. <clears throat> that seems to be the climax of Abraham's perseverance under trial. And the author of Hebrews notes that in Hebrews chapter eleven. And um, let's look at how mature his faith had become. And Bud, if you'll read to us those verses. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Okay, so God had promised a seed through Isaac. He says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Isaac. Well, then he tells him to kill Isaac, to offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham, his faith had grown so much that he knew that even if he did, God was going to keep the promise somehow. So he concludes, well, I'll kill him. God will raise him up from the dead. That's how his faith had grown. He was so sure that God would keep his promise that he was going to raise Isaac up from the dead. One commentator, I can't remember who it was, kind of speculated that Abraham was thinking that God had a problem here. God, you got a problem. You're telling me to kill my son, and yet you're gonna you're gonna uh, bless the whole world through him. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, maybe Abraham did think that. God, you got a problem, but. Actually, the author of Hebrews states that Abraham was sure that he would still be blessed because God was going to raise him from the dead. 
All right, any comments on anything so far? Okay, verses... Uh, in verse 15, you notice the author tells them how Abraham was blessed. He patiently endured. Um, he says, And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Alright, here's the sequence, and this is any notes. God promises. We've been through all that. Then Abraham believed. Abraham endured. And then Abraham received the promise. So this would be an example for the recipients to follow. Abraham received the promise from afar. It wasn't fulfilled in his lifetime. But if Abraham believed and Abraham endured and he received the promise, y'all are going to receive the promise too. You people will receive the promise too. So this is an example for them. Alright, verses 16 through 18. It says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So the author here is driving home the point that God is faithful to His promises. So this should strengthen the faith of the recipients. God's counsel is immutable. God cannot change His mind. And seeing that God is omnipotent, that God has control over all things, that God is all-powerful, He's able to keep His promises. So that's why we can't keep our promises. We... We're foolish, really, even to make a promise um, because we're not omnipotent. We can't be guaranteed that we would keep our promises. But God is omnipotent. He's able to keep His promises. He makes a promise here, and He confirms that <clears throat> promise with an oath. The promise and the oath are immutable. Those are the two immutable things that the author is talking about here. Those are two immutable things, and therefore it is perfectly reliable. When God says something, it is perfectly reliable. It is as good as done. One now, more time, the two things is what? His oath and His promise. He made a promise and He confirmed it with an oath. First John two twenty five. Who knows what that says? Okay, 1 John 2, 25. I'll read it to you. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Now, the reason I read that is our eternal destiny depends on His promise. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. So that's how important it is to us. 
that God's word is perfectly reliable. He has promised us eternal life. So our eternal destiny rests on the fact that God's word is reliable. If it was possible for him to lie, we got a problem. All right, and then finally in verses 19 and 20, it talks about the hope here. It says, A hope that we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast, and what one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So the author here, as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in 19 and 20, the author starts returning again to the teaching of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Jesus Christ. He considers our hope. Our hope is sure. Our hope is steadfast. And it enters the holy place to the presence of Christ. And Jill, I want to have you look up for us Exodus 26, 31 through 34. So Jesus then is in the holy place as our forerunner and as our great high priest. And we should remember that He is there because of God's oath. Psalm 110, verse 4. I'll read that for us. Jesus is there in the holy place because the Lord has or Jehovah Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh has sworn, he's made an oath. And Jesus is there as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is this holy place behind the veil? What what are we talking about here? Jill is going to read to us about how the tabernacle was constructed. Exodus 26 and beginning where? 31 through 34. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. Through... 30, that was 34. 34, yeah. All right, so, so what we have here is a dividing veil between the holy place where the priest performs their work and the most holy place where the high priest goes in only once a year with a bunch of blood and a bunch of smoke. So, and in the most holy place, we have the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. That is the most holy place. And it's what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus now has entered within the veil. He is in the most holy place. And so he is going to be talking about this pretty extensively over the next few chapters. 
about Jesus being our merciful and faithful high priest and how he has entered the most holy place behind the veil. And Christ has opened up the true holy place in heaven for us. And we will be with him there forever. Because Jesus Christ is the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'll close this again by quoting Peterson again as a point of application for us here. He says, So the antidote to spiritual apathy and apostasy is the renewal of hope. And he's got hope in italics. Hope is the motivation for faithfulness and love. The basis for our hope is the promise of God, confirmed with an oath. Since the saving promises of God have already been fulfilled for us in the death and heavenly exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this gives us every encouragement to believe that those who trust in Jesus will share with Him and the promised eternal inheritance. So very applicable for us that we have the promise of God and we have Jesus Christ there within the veil, the true most holy place in heaven. Okay, that's all I have. I'm opening it up for comments. Anyone has?